But good morning. Appreciate everybody being here this morning. Looks like we might get some rain later, so hope everybody's prepared. <laughs> so when we left off last week, um, by the way, the green books back there are still the second Peter books, and the blue books are for John, which we're probably going to start this morning. If anyone needs one of the blue books in the back, does anyone need one? I can grab it for you. Okay, Shirley Dunn needs one. Thank you. Because we'll probably get into that depending on how long we take this morning here with Second Peter. We're just finishing up the third chapter. So thank you all for that. Um, so we'll read the, uh, the verses here, the last verses in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures." You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Now we were looking down at question 10. We've just uh, gone through question 9. And question 10 is, again, what will happen to the heavens and the elements? Right, they will melt with a fervent heat. They will burn up, right? And he says that in uh, verse 12, right? So then we look at question 11. Despite such an end, what do we look for according to his promise? We look for a new heaven and a new earth, right? Right. We look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we can see that 
And uh, you can see that mentioned actually in two places, and I forget who mentioned this last week, but someone mentioned, you know, Isaiah 65, 17, might have been Matt, I can't remember who brought that up. And then you can also see it in Revelation 21, 1. So it wasn't a new idea even to Peter at that time, if you think about that. Then if we look at uh, question number 12, looking forward to such things, about what should we be diligent or how should we be? We should be in peace without spot or and blameless or without blemish, right? In other words, we should make sure that we are continuing to follow the Lord, right? Even perhaps even more so if you think about it that way. That's what he's trying to stress to us that we make sure that we are found in him in Christ. Then if we look at question 13, how should we view the long-suffering of the Lord? He's our salvation and our sacrifice. It's our salvation, right? The long-suffering of the Lord, the reason he waits, like we've mentioned before, and I know we've mentioned it before, um, it's his grace and mercy toward us trying to allow everyone a chance to receive salvation, to accept salvation. Jesus already paid the price for everyone's salvation. They just need a chance to accept it. Yes? Within that thought, it is, I'm asking, is it included here that at some point God's patience and long-suffering will end? Or are we assuming that? Well, I think from reading, you're asked, she's asking if, uh, do, are we assuming that God's patience and long suffering will end? And I would say there isn't, there is a time, there is an end to that, to, there is a time when we do run out of time. I mean, there is an end to, to it. It's not that he doesn't have love and mercy towards everyone, but he knows when there will be a time from what we read in Revelation where people will no longer be repentant. It just They just won't. Yes, ma'am? You go a few verses back, I think it's pretty well implied there. Verse 10, the fact that the Lord will come like a thief in the fire and all this, and then, you know, what, since all this is going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought to be able to realize life of holiness and godliness? So the coming of the day of the Lord is the end of his patience. Right, the coming of the day of the Lord. Well, yeah, that does signal the end of the, that's the end of that time. That's the end of his patience. That's when it's, that's what, uh, that is what he's referring to. So when the Lord comes, I mean, that does signal the end of that time. And God is the only one that knows that. Right. Jesus didn't know either. Right, Jesus doesn't know it either. Jesus doesn't know when that day will be. He said he didn't. So, so the only one is God. Yeah, God is the only one that knows when that day will come. And I guess, um, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I look at it as God knows when there's no one left to be saved. Um, 
more so than that, more than the other viewpoint. I look at it from that viewpoint. But uh, either way, whether you say his patience runs out or he just knows that no one else is going to be willing to be saved, that's that's a, a debate you could have, I suppose. But it can remind you of going back to Noah's day where God knew that these people, the ones that were saved through the ark, he knew they were the only ones. He knew the others were not. And Noah had a hundred years to get even one person and couldn't get anybody, right? So, Matt. That's a good point. Uh, I think I've often thought in my mind, trying to make sense of this, that God just has some random day that, that he's going to return. And, and that's that. But I... You make a good point that it's, he's saying here he's patient. He's looking for those things. He relates to the day of Noah and also the Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, there's that whole negotiation with Abraham and God. Well, yep. What if there's 50 people? What all yes. this? And God's like completely willing to save it. If there's if there's people there, but it's just Lot and his family's the only one. Right. So, yeah, it sounds like the world's going to get worse. And at some point, God's going to say, well, that's there's nothing else to harvest here. Right, that's that's and that's the way I look at it too. Is and if you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's a very good example too, where Abraham is bargaining with God, and God is willing to save that city if there's even just ten people, you know. And unfortunately, there wasn't. There was just Lot and his family, and that was all there was. So, that's another good example. Um, yes. Yeah, because her heart, because she looked back, because there was something, there was something that was drawing her back. I, you know, I, I don't get into all of that, but there was something she was thinking of or missing or looking back towards. And it didn't sound like there was really anything there that we should be looking back towards, right? If we think about looking back to our life before the Lord, you'd think there's really not. But sometimes we're guilty of that, too. We look back at the past and think of things in a way, kind of a rose-colored glass kind of way that it really wasn't that way. Somehow maybe reminiscing or something. Yeah, like you reminisce of things you've done in your past and, you know, and then, but if you really think about it, it wasn't that great. As a matter of fact, it wasn't good. But. Yeah, with Lot's wife, yeah. And she was on her way out. I mean, you can you can compare that back to the uh, children of Israel, too. I mean, they're being brought out, and it's obvious that God is with them, and, follow, and they are following him. Yet they still complained and wanted to go back to Egypt uh, 
number of times. So go back to slavery in Egypt. So, and that's, I think that's all comparisons are the same thing where we look back at our sin and for some reason we're drawn back towards it. It's a human failing. I can't blame it on anybody else. It's, it's our own failing. So, does anyone have anything else on this before we move on? All right. So, our final question here for Second Peter, I believe. Oh no, it's not. I'm looking at my the wrong page. Okay, so question fourteen though. Who else wrote about such things? Who else does Peter mention? Yes, Pat. Paul. Paul. Paul wrote about a lot of things, right? And he wrote about these things. So, and then it, the question in the book says how. Uh, yeah, how I guess is okay. So how? Yes. He had the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, he had the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's true. Yep. And the, the way they phrase it here is according to the wisdom given him by the Holy Spirit, right? So, yeah. So that's how he was writing of those things is because God was telling him these things, showing him these things. Then question 15, how does Peter describe the epistles of Paul? And it's hard to understand. Some of them are hard to understand. Yeah, in which some things hard to some as he as speaking of these things in which are some things hard to understand. And that's true. If you read some of Paul's epistles, some of those sentences can be long and, and run on sentences, and there's all kinds of but he's also trying to explain some things that are difficult to understand. So you have to you kind of have to give them some grace for the fact that they're trying to communicate that to us, you know. But yeah, yes, man. It's interesting too. You think about Peter's background. I mean, obviously, he's an apostle. He was with Christ and everything, but he was a fisherman. He's just yes. this regular guy. Whereas Paul was, you know, the up up and coming, you know, educated by Gamaliel, and he was highly educated in all these ways. So they're quite a contrast. And so it's kind of natural that maybe Paul's writings would confound. Peter and us too. Like, I really struggle with that. At this that's point. a good point because Paul was very educated and was very, you know, much higher up into the uh, uh, into their religious organization. Whereas Peter was more of the common man, like one of us. He's just out doing his job, right, making a living, trying to take care of his family, and is not as educated as Paul was. So. Of course, some of those things would be harder to understand even back then for some of them. So if we look at question 16, what do the untaught and unstable do with such writings of Paul? Yes, ma'am. It twists them to their own destruction. And that's, I think when things are difficult, like Revelation, obviously Paul didn't write Revelation, but some of those things that can be taken different ways. People just twist things around and make it every, mean every which thing that doesn't really mean. Right. They twist them to their own destruction. And it, now this makes it sound like it's on purpose, but I will say that, I mean, for some people, they just misunderstand. It's not even on purpose. They just misunderstand. Now, some people do twist things to their own destruction, but uh, a lot of times people just misunderstand. 
the difficult things. Yes. It's interesting. It says the ignorant and the unstable do that. And so that's probably the other side of that coin is it's important for us to work to be not ignorant, to be to become knowledgeable in the word of God and become stable in the word of God so that maybe the, the more difficult scriptures can be illuminated by the easier to understand scriptures. That's probably where people go wrong. They'll just dive into the difficult scriptures and just get all carried away in the wrong thing. We need to be stable. Right. That is that is a good point. It points back to the untaught and unstable, or like you said, ignorant. We need to make sure that we're not ignorant of the scriptures. We need to make sure that we know and that we have that stable foundation, that basis on which everything else should grow from. Jim? That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, who he had guided and had in some ways under his wing showing him about the word, but he said, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to take that passage very seriously. Right, that's why Paul told even Timothy to study to show himself approved. You know, we need to make sure that we are studying our Bible. There's always some way in which we can be listening to or learning more about the Bible, whether we listen to it in some form or actually read it. I know some people may have problems with certain with reading or or maybe you learn better by reading and less by listening. But, you know, there's always some way we can, you know, keep God's word on our minds and keep uh, studying that and thinking about that. I think that's the important part of that, that that way, if we're if we're taught, if we're learned in the scriptures, then we will not be twisting them or misunderstanding them. Does anybody have anything else? Um, so if we look at 17, yes. In what category does Peter place the writings of Paul? In, in kind of an offhand way, I'll say. In letters or in, uh, yeah, we, uh, in, in verse 17, this is, I guess this is kind of an odd, um, maybe an odd way of saying this, but he actually relates Paul's letters to the scriptures in verse 16, I'm sorry, in kind of a backhand way, because he talks about his epistles, and he says, which people twist as they do also the rest of the scriptures, equating Paul's writings to being part of the scriptures. Does that make sense? I know it's a little bit of a backhand way to say that, but that's what he was saying. Yes, man. And I, I looked that up, that, that word for scriptures is, is, is really just the word for writings. But in the, in the context of the New Testament, it always means the holy scriptures, the, you know, the right. Old Testament specifically, when you look at each of those and what it's talking about. But this one isn't talking about the Old Testament, obviously. It's lumping the other scriptures, the Old Testament, Scriptures and Paul's scripture. He's, right. he's on par with the, the Yeah, Peter was equating what Paul had written to the scriptures and the scriptures at that of their day would have mostly been what we think of as the Old Testament, though they were adding to the scriptures, of course, through God as they were going through these times. Yes. Even though uh, all these writings that we have 
still says there in verse 15, he says that it was the wisdom that God gave him. So there was much to be gleaned there. There was a lot to learn, and it was worthy of taking the time and studying it. Right, because he was referring to that, you know, uh, from Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, the things that he wrote to them about was from, uh, was according to the wisdom that God had given him, basically, is what he's saying. Yes. So those, you know, those things were important and things that uh, we could all learn from. Which I think is an important distinction because, like Matt was saying, Paul was a very educated man. He had a lot of wisdom if you look at sort yeah. of um, an educated, wise person that had a lot to share. He had a lot to share. He even knew and spent a lot of time um, in the law, knew the law. Right. Paul was very educated and knew the that's a that's a very good point. He knew the law really well. I mean, he was one of those people that were was he part of the Pharisees? Am I is that right? Okay, so he was part of the Pharisees. That's what I was remembering, but I wasn't sure if that was absolutely correct. So he he was already in that community of religious leaders and he knew the law really well. Even so there was more room for him to gain wisdom from God. And I think that's an example. Well, I've read my Bible. I've read the Bible this many times in my life. There's more and more to, you know, keep delving deeper and discover, and it's always eye-opening and illuminating. Keep reading and studying. Right. Yeah, it's it's always important to keep reading and studying, even when you think you know it all. I'm sure at one point before the road and meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus, right? I'm sure at one point he probably thought he knew it all until that happened. And sometimes we get that way. We think we know it all. But. And we think we have it figured out. I think Paul thought he had it figured out. He's like, well, this isn't right. I'm going to take care of this. This is wrong. It's blasphemy. Right. Right. And that's how they were looking at what they called the way or the people who were following Jesus at that time. They looked at them as blasphemous because they were... And, and they still, I mean, you know, even Jews today, one of the things they say is that, you know, the problem is we equate Jesus with God. And that's something they can't handle. So, at least, I'm not talking about Christian Jews, I'm talking about Jews who are still following Judaism alone. So, anyway, so, if we look at 18... Knowing such things beforehand, what warning does Peter give his readers? In other words, we know what's going to happen, what's coming down the road. Yes, Pat. Uh, to beware of uh, not falling away from your own steadfastness. Right. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfast, being led away by the error of the wicked or being led away with the error of the wicked. So we need to be wary, be aware, and you can see that kind of uh, warning makes sense at any time throughout history and today in today's life as well. We need to make sure that we're aware so that we do not fall from our own knowledge of the Lord, right? be led away into error. If we look at question 19, what final admonition does Peter give to his readers? 
to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? Like we were talking about by studying the Bible, studying the word, right? But that is what protects us. The reason he says that is that's what protects us from false teaching and scoffers and being led away in error. Now, does anybody have anything else on this or anything in 2 Peter before we move on to 1 John? Yes. Well, you grow in grace. That's the question, how do we grow in grace? You grow in grace by practicing that, right? It's like anything else we do. We have to give grace to others, right? We have to know and understand God's grace, but then we also have to practice that ourselves in our own lives. Do you know something, Jim? And we need to apply God's standard to that. What I think about grace doesn't amount to a lot, but uh, I need to understand what God did and what he said Right. We should apply God's standard of grace. And he showed us, he showed us his standard of grace, really, if you think about it. Jesus on the cross, forgiving everyone, even those who don't believe, even while we were enemies of him, say, as the word says, right? We still got to care about what's happening with them, even if they're not, haven't been, haven't changed. Right. Right. We still have to care about everyone in the world, regardless of whether of whether they care back or they have any, you know, even any interest or anything. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. If you go back, Jesus says, "But I say, yeah, I love your enemies." Right. Right. Instead of hating your enemies, because that was the old that was the old thing they told him was love your neighbor but hate your enemies, and he's saying, but I say love your enemies. He's showing that godly standard, and you can go through the teachings of Jesus and see that he applied that godly standard of grace and mercy and loving others, and those are probably the most important points that he he made to us, you know, and how we should apply all of this. Yeah. I was going to say, the Old Testament, as we've been studying kings and everything, we see all these battles and how they hate their enemy and they have to kill them because God tells them to. And then when you get in the New Testament, we're seeing what Kim was saying, to love your enemy. And you don't see any battles in the, the New Testament anymore. Right. We don't see that, yeah, we're not on a, what do you call it, we're not on a campaign of wars, you know, to establish this kingdom. God has established this kingdom with a spiritual war that Jesus has already won, really. So this is, that's how his kingdom is established for us now. Does anyone have anything else, Matt? Well, along with that, you know, Ephesians 6, 12, we do not, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual. Right. We still have battles, but they're... We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. That's right. We, uh, we, are, we are fighting... Principalities and powers, spiritual, it's spiritual battles. Yes. And then just that last verse, uh, 
it almost feels like kind of a throwaway closing statement or whatever, but that praise that he gives to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I mean, that I'm always looking for, for things like that because I feel like my speech is not peppered enough with praise for God. We don't talk like that. We, we have songs that say that, but that, that's not a phrase I normally say. I think I need to incorporate more of praise for God like that. That is a really good point. We do need to do that because um, I don't do that either. Yeah, we should. We should have praise for our Lord and our Savior in our in our speech and in our writing. That's true. And I, I, I never think of that either just because we don't talk that way nowadays. But yeah. because like you can copy and paste that. You can just, you can just use that. <laughs> you yeah. You just say that. And you that, could. So it's grab, good to grab those examples. Yeah, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Now that's my translation. Yours may say it slightly differently, but nonetheless. And the him he's speaking of, of course, is Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, yeah, that would be a good example for us to take. A lot of, a lot of the things from their epistles, if we look at it, they have a lot of good examples of things that we should probably practice that we just don't do anymore because it sounds... I don't know, what does it sound too formal or flowery? Did you have something, Eileen? Well, I've noticed that there's some people that I have come in contact with, at least lately, that their speeches just like this. They use praises to God and they give Him the glory and they thank Him, you know, like <coughs> as I'm speaking to them. And like you said, we don't usually do that. I don't know. And I feel like, oh, I really need to change my thinking and my speech because I want them to know that that's how I feel too. Yep. Okay? And it's obvious that that's how they feel. And they probably don't know that about me because I don't talk like that. And that makes me sad. Yeah, it's, it's kind of sad that we've fallen out of that because I, I haven't run into anybody lately who speaks like that. I, I have lately a lot, so that's kind that's of great. I say that. Yeah. I can remember more of that when I was younger. You know, people would routinely, you'd hear like, you know, praise the Lord for something good or, or thank God. And people, would, and that was pretty normal. But I, I don't hear as much of that just randomly out amongst people nowadays. Yes. I mean, the scriptures should step on our toes yep. and change our lives. Yeah. So when we see something like that, we know what to do. <laughs> we need to we, take that in. Yeah, we need to do better. Yeah, that makes sense. We do need to conform to the examples we're seeing in the Word of God. Yes. We had a preacher here years ago named Fred Shoemaker, and he said uh, he had a sermon one time, and a lady met him at the back of the door at some other congregation and said, Boy, you really stepped on my toes this morning, preacher. And he said, I wasn't reaching for your toes, I was reaching for your heart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that is the aim, right? I mean, that's what God wants to change with the with the Bible. He says he wants to change our hearts. That's the idea. So, now does anyone have anything else before we... I think we're about out of time for this morning, so maybe we'll start with uh, 1 John next Sunday morning, if y'all are okay with that. And I uh, want to thank you for your time and your attention and your interaction. <laughs>